Hey, y'all, I'm going to take a second to give a quick shout out to the official mortgage lender of the Hunt with Deep podcast. That's Casey Burns of Prime Lending Mortgage. I've known Casey for 10 years and he's the only lender I use. I've used Casey to purchase two houses and the process has been seamless and easy each time. He's the heart of an educator and he truly cares about what's best for his clients. He specializes in VA loans, but can handle FHA, conventional investment loans as well. He's a true expert and specialist in his field, and there's no one I recommend more than Casey. You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com. Reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithcasey.com. Thanks, y'all. No, damn it. Perry Eisner and Scotty Eisen. <laughs> Shit. All right, we're going to start. I'm going to start over again. I'll get it this time. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt, Lift, Eat podcast for part two of After the Kill with the same crew from before. Joining us for the first time in a long time, Perry Eisner. What's going on, man? Nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Not much, man. Yeah, it's been a minute since I've been on one of these, so I'm excited to... uh to talk with Caleb and Scotty here, listen to the, to the first episode that you boys did. Um, it was awesome. A lot of good information and excited to see what else you have in store for us. Yeah, man, we'll see where it takes us. Um, you and I were just hanging out in the Hills of Virginia, chasing turkeys, spent the whole weekend with you. And it's weird to now be hanging out with you via Zencaster again, just like the old days, right? Yep. Lucky you, right? Got to hang (laughs) out with, with me and Evan for an entire weekend of, of male bonding at the hunting cabin. So I guarantee you one thing we know Luke was jealous, but Hey, we killed some birds. At least you did. So yeah, we sure did, man. It was a fantastic weekend and I'm excited to unpack uh, everything that kind of unfolded that weekend that we, we packed a lot into two and a half days <laughs> there at the Dude, farm. And it was, it was nuts. I was telling, I was telling drew the stories, all the different stories of all the action. It was crazy. Yeah. We'll have to, We'll have to unpack that on a different episode, but yeah, absolutely. We'll get, get Evan on here and we'll get after it, man. And, uh, back again this week, we've got Caleb Bell joining us. What's going on, Caleb? Just another day in paradise, boys. Can't complain. Nothing like a, a good Tuesday afternoon. It's actually the only day of the week. I don't have competitive men's softball, so I'm not complaining right now. <laughs> yeah. I said that out loud and I admitted to it. <laughs> you know, no judgment Ballsy. here, man. No judgment here. I uh, I love your upbeat attitude, Caleb. It makes me happy. Hey, I'm glad to hear that because when I go to Chick-fil-A and get chicken nuggets, they freak out. They're not used to somebody asking them that, uh, how was your day? Because mine's phenomenal, right? <laughs> they have a little bit of a heart attack. Might hire you, man. And also <laughs> also coming at us from California, we got Scotty Eisen. What's going on, Scotty? What's up, boys? Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming back on. We decided uh, you have what we call potential, Scotty. So we decided to have you back on again, you know? Yeah, well, I'll take what I can get at this point. <laughs> so, thank you. I'll take it as a compliment, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, man, for sure. Well, we had a lot of really good feedback from the podcast that we released uh, last week, the first iteration, part one of After the Kill. And uh, kudos to you, Scotty and Caleb, for kind of getting the ball rolling on that topic and sharing your your wealth of knowledge. Um, with listeners there a lot of a lot of great feedback and um, it's nice to kind of delve into a little deeper and broader spectrum of things than you know what perry and i's limited hunting expeditions uh have covered so it's good to actually talk to guys who have uh put some elk and put some 
respectable mule deer on the ground. So, you know, we appreciate it, man. But uh, we'll, we'll kick it off tonight, guys. Um, I don't remember exactly where we left off last week, but um, Caleb, I know you're very well prepped. And uh, I guess we're going to start with kind of the big discussion, maybe amongst the four of us. I know Caleb and I have opinions on it, but to gut or not to gut, we'll go with your uh, with your Shakespeare reference there, Caleb. So why don't you kick us off with uh, the gutless method here? Yeah, of course. You know, I talk to a lot of guys in the field and, and it seems like there's this lost perspective of the gutless method versus gutting an animal, right? There's so many people that are kind of hesitant to do it. And when it comes down to the end of the day, I mean, the gutless method isn't something that hasn't been around for a while. It's nothing new, right? It's It's been around for decades, years, hundreds of years. There's probably even thousands of years, really. And uh, the main reason why I like the gutless method and, and the big thing that gets me kind of turned on about it and mainly the reason that I use it in the field is keeping meat clean. At the end of the day, when it comes to the gutless method, you can minimize the amount of urine, feces, uh, cross-contamination, and really break the animal down in kind of a methodical process that allows you to keep that meat as clean as possible for the pack out. You know, we talked a little bit on the last one, how, how critical it is keeping that meat uh, clean, whether it's from hair, dirt, debris, poop, pee, whatever it may be, at the end of the day, that's going to potentially ruin your meat. So the less or the more you can do to prevent that, the better. So that's why we were going to kind of talk about the gutless method this time. And I had a lot of people reach out to and kind of ask questions about it. It seems like a lot of people don't do it a whole lot. I don't know about you guys, but it's a, it's primarily my main, main way of uh, breaking down an animal in the field. Well, luckily for me, uh, Caleb, I, you know, I want, I want to be, a, have the ability to get in there and go do that. But for us, we are, we're, you know, circumstantially, you know, we have a barn, we're able to drag that thing up there and get it up there quick and not have to do it in the field. So, um, you know, I've been lucky in that, in that regard, but, um, but there are going to be times in my future when I'm in the back country where I'm not going to want to, you know, where I won't have that ability, but I'll want to get in there and, and try to do that gutless method. That's what I, like I was saying last, last, uh, episode, but, um, a lot of guys are doing it now and it's an important, uh, skill to learn how to do, even if uh, you've never done it before. Um, so it's, it's a nice uh, tool to have in your repertoire. If you can, uh, if you can get in there and, and get some practice doing it, cause I imagine it's not the easiest thing to do the first time, right? No, definitely not. When you're dump, jumping into it for the very first time, it's a little bit intimidating, right? Here you are, you're trying to be a little bit more careful. You're paying attention to your cuts and you're really setting that animal up for, for the future, for what step is going to happen next. Right. So it's, it's very intimidating, especially for those people who've never done it before. Uh, personally, I wasn't a huge fan of it growing up. Same kind of deal, right? We always had four or five people. It was hacking and slacking and getting quarters off and gutting and call it good. The first time that I ever did the gutless method, uh, we actually talked about it a little bit on that, that last podcast was when uh, I decided I was going to go elk hunting after I had rotator cuff surgery. That was my first experience with the gutless method. You know, I was down one arm. I didn't want to spend a lot of time out there and I really wanted to get out of the back country as soon as I could. And all I had was paracord carabiners and a little bit of ingenuity. So I figured it out. But for me, I, I think a big part of that is there's a lot of resources out there. And at the end of the slideshow, Carter, I don't know if you're going to send that out for everybody, uh, but I did put some resource links on there. There's some really good videos out there by guys who have their method. And I think that's the next important part of this is when you dive into it, there's going to be something that works best for you. 
And that's what you're going to figure out. This isn't a, a telltale way. This isn't the have to do it this way. It's you're going to find something that works best for you. And the stuff we're going to talk about today is just kind of a method that works for me and kind of a starting place for everybody else might help you out a little bit. I got a, I got a quick question or at least just point of interest for you, Caleb. How much does the, the circumstances of the hunt, um, where you are, whether you're backcountry, how far out you are, weather conditions, the size of the animal, whether it's an elk or whether it's a, you know, a pronghorn or a mule deer or whatever factor into the decision between the gutless versus, you know, the more traditional, um, or maybe not more traditional, but the, you know, the just gutting it and then letting it hang because I'm similar to you, Scotty. I've always kind of had the fortunate situation of having a place to hang a deer. Um, you know, deer season in the mountains of Southwest Virginia is typically pretty cold. You can usually let it hang for a couple of days if you want to let it age a little bit in the field. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's the the practice I'm most familiar with. I'm just curious, how, do, do you let circumstances dictate which method you use or is it, is it pretty much gutless all the time now? Nowadays for me, it's just gutless all the time. It doesn't really matter about the circumstances. Um, when I first started out, same kind of deal as you guys, right? I was hunting in areas where I was close access to roads, uh, vehicles, winches, whatever it may be. So the gutless method really wasn't something I really cared about that much. Uh, but now that I focus a little bit more on the time spent out there and being careful when I'm doing it, the gutless method for me is, is the way to go. Uh, mainly, like I said, though, the biggest thing for me is meat contamination. Now the amount of fecal matter and the amount of pee that I've had on a hind quarter and not paid attention until I got back to the truck and then realized, you know, I've got four or five pounds of spoiled meat because it smells like piss <laughs> for lack of better terms has really dictated the fact that I primarily use the gutless method now just for how, how clean it is at the end of the day. Yeah, Perry. And I think that's a great question because, um, believe it or not, I, I, I found myself in that same situation this weekend. Um, and I didn't think it happened so quickly after our last episode, but I was out pig hunting this weekend. And, um, on, on Sunday I got really lucky. I got lucky. I, I was into the pigs. There seemed like they were everywhere. And, um, and, and I got a boar down and it's hot as hell. And I'm on the side of this hillside. There's no cover anywhere unless I wanted to drag this. Uh, he probably weighed, um, probably just over a couple hundred pounds, I think. But unless I wanted to drag him halfway up the hill to, underneath an oak tree, but there was no, no shade, no nothing. And I was super stoked that I got something down and my first pig at that, but I started to set up, I took some pictures. I set up my camera. I'm like, I'm going to make some cool videos out of this. And I did a video. I was going to do a time-lapse and I went down and I, and I got down, I was getting ready to gut. And I, <laughs> and I just paused for, I swear I sat there for three minutes, just staring at him, trying to figure out <laughs> how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? How am I going to get him down? Am I going to, you know, am I going to, am I going to quarter him? Am I going to, what, how am I going to keep him clean? You know? Um, and so, uh, you know, we talk about have a plan and all that stuff, but you got to be flexible and you got to, you know, have an idea of what your options are. And I ended up doing somewhat of a, of a hybrid, uh, process, but I, I gutted in the way I feel most comfortable getting him, you know, the, the standard, just, you know, start from the back, get it all cleaned up and get everything pulled out. I pulled everything out. He was just straight gutted and I, and I was happy with it, but I left a hide on it cause I knew I was going to try to drag him out at that point. And if you're going to do a drag, which is kind of what we're getting at, rather than packing them out, you know, the best 
option is to obviously leave that hide on there, get the guts out, leave the hide on and, 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 you know, start your drag. Cause that hide's going to protect a lot of the mini, you know, along the way. Um, but, um, knowing what your options are is the best thing possible, you know, and, uh, having the ability to, um, go one way or, or have to redirect and go to another because of circumstances, because of heat. And those pigs are so, and I'm learning a lot about them. I was actually talking to the butcher this morning about, you know, what can I do differently next time to make sure this meat's better prepared for you? It looked good, everything, but so freaking hot out here and pigs spoil so quickly that you like, it sounded like I need to get them to the butcher, like within a day, you know, or definitely on ice and stuff. So, um, anyway, it it was just funny. So I think that was a great question, Perry, on trying to figure out how and when do you do with each method, you know? So, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's circumstantial for sure. What did the, uh, what did the butcher say to you, Scotty, when you asked that question, did they offer anything beneficial? Yeah. Well, he, um, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, the bone in weight and stuff last episode and, and, you know, quartering and bringing a certain amount in, um, I took the tenderloins out. I took the loins out before I brought it there just because I didn't want to wait a long time to get those. Um, you know, I wanted to be able to eat those and be able, you know, I can take care of those very easily, but the sausage and everything else that you're going to end up probably trying to do with the pig. He, his recommendations are get it, um, cooled down as fast as possible. Um, get it skinned and cooled down as fast as possible. Keep it clean. Um, you know, he, he, you know, I had a big cooler. He said, you can use some, uh, egg crates inside to keep it up off the ice and, you know, do not try your best to keep it from getting wet. Um, I'm in the, uh, hazardous waste industry. So I have these big heavy duty plastic bags that work perfectly for meat. And I'm pretty cautious on how I use them, but he did say, you got to be careful because plastic will cause meat to sweat, you know, and you don't want the sweat and the bacteria to grow inside those, those bags. Um, but, uh, uh, really just keep keeping it cool and keep it clean is, uh, the best thing he said and get it to the butcher as fast as possible. Those were his, his main tips. And so I think it gave me something to work on for next time. I really like that egg crate idea. You know, that's a, that's a pro tip right there. I've never used an egg crate, but I've got a bunch of old, I guess, what would you call them? Like the, the grill sections, like the little stand up grills. That's exactly what I usually use in the bottom of my coolers in order to keep that meat off the off the ice. And then you combine that with dry ice. And like we talked about last time, you can keep ice in there for days, but you keep that meat dry for the most part and you keep it up off that water. Yeah, it's the best thing possible. It's always been something that we've struggled <laughs> with all the time uh, coming home from Colorado to California is that multi-day trip home trying to keep meat cool and keep it from swimming, you know, in the cooler on the way home. Uh, so, uh, I thought it was a good tip and it's definitely something I'm going to try to prepare a little bit more on this hunt. Particularly, I was kind of packed up, ready to go. I had packed up out of my camp. I actually took advantage of the weekend because my son golfs, uh, a lot like you, Caleb, like you did. And so my weekends are full of golf tournaments and, um, different events like that. So I had a free weekend. So I told the wife, Hey, I'm going to go out and go try to hunt this weekend. I wanted, I was going out to try to shoot a turkey. And, uh, I shot my first Turkey last year, but, um, I thought I was into them one morning and, uh, they just, they came out of the roost. They went the complete opposite direction that I was, uh, I have a video of me trying to do some freaking calls and, uh, they were, they were, uh, they were gobbling back, but my calling was just horrendous, <laughs> but <laughs> they'll, uh, 
but uh, I was unsuccessful with that, but I tried to take advantage of the weekend and, and try to get a hunt in. And so I was already packed up. That's what I was getting. I was already packed up, ready to go. My whole truck's packed and I bring this pig in and I'm like, what do I do now? You know, I pull a tarp out of the truck. I drag him down the road and uh, it was a little bit frantic, I must say, because of how hot it was, you know, and just getting my hands out between the hide and the meat. I was kind of freaking out a little bit because I was like, holy, it felt like it was 110 degrees inside there. Uh, whether it's from the friction of the drag or whatever, but I did that like a hybrid skinning job where I skinned half of it. Like you would, if you're going with the gutless method and it worked really good because the flies out here can be pretty crazy. And so I could tell they were going to start attacking the carcass once I exposed it. So I was able to skin it real quick and just fold that hide back over it to try to protect it as much as possible before I rolled it onto the uh, tarp. So, um, I was, I was, I was prepared, but, um, it was challenging at that for sure. I like what you said earlier, Scotty, and it makes me happy to know I haven't been the only guy who's been staring at an animal on the ground and thinking, shit. Okay. <laughs> thinking through all the options here and like, okay, I should have maybe thought about this a little bit beforehand, but this things happen so fast. And now I've got an animal down and, you know, I've had delusions of grandeur like oh yeah i'm gonna set up my camera and i'm gonna film this and you know i've got derek's new knife that he sent me and i'm gonna get some content for stand to blade and i'm you know gonna get some content for hle to put on youtube but sometimes time doesn't always allow it right and so knowing you know knowing what your options are like you said is really important and as far as the gutless method and we can we can move on uh from the gutless method from this but I think the only, you know, knowing that it's an option is really important. And the only way you're going to know that it's an option is to become proficient at both the gutless method and, um, you know, I guess a more traditional gutting the animal um, because it does apply to the situation. It 100% applies to whatever situation you're in. The guy who taught me how to hunt was my buddy Trevor Holbrooks. And he taught me how or he taught me the gutless method from the beginning. And I didn't realize that that was not like normal. Um, and he taught me, he likes to hang his deer with a toe strap from a, we didn't have like a barn or anything in college is when I learned. And so we'd hang it over a limb of a big Oak tree and he would hang it around the neck and hang the deer from its neck. Right. So it was hanging head up, legs down where a lot of people, you know, use a gambrel and hang it upside down, which I feel like is more like traditional, like deer camp type of, you know, hanging. And then you got it that way. And he taught me how to do the gutless method and you just make a cut around the neck and you basically just skin off the whole thing like a sock. And then you can cut off your shoulders nice and neat, cut off your back hams nice and neat, get your rib meat nice and neat, get your back straps. And then you can reach in through those last couple ribs and then pull out your inside tenderloins. And then you're good to hook, right? And then you have all the time in the world to work on the neck meat and unroll the neck meat and, you know, clean it up like that. And then all of it goes into a, uh, 40 gallon trash trash bin and then we drink a few beers and drag it down the road and dump it in the neighbor's field that was the move right um but yeah knowing your options is the only way to get proficient at, at both of those um again i sucked at gutting until like probably this past year and then uh yeah actually when luke and i first met he made fun of me a lot because i was hesitant i wasn't good at it and i was like shit if i'm gonna be involved with this hunting company i should probably learn how to be a little better at this. So I just begged everybody, every animal I was ever around. I was like, please let me, 
let me clean your animal. Let me, let me do it. And then that's the best way to get good. But yeah, know your options, man. It depends on the situation, right? No, I think that's awesome because, you know, when you really dive into it and we're talking about situational, or situational awareness and circumstances, let's just go ahead and dive into one, right? Here we are right where you're at, Scotty. You know, it's hot outside. You're not really sure what to do, but you are most comfortable with a certain way of doing it in that situation. That is the best choice. Don't focus on something you've never done before. Don't try to do something new and wild and crazy. At the end of the day, you need to get that meat home and you need to be able to eat that meat. Do what you're comfortable with. And I think, uh, I think talking about heat and talking about heat with uh, animals and reducing heat on a carcass, let's jump into deboning. You know, the, the warmest part of an animal is the bones, right there. It's the center mass of meat. It's going to stay warm the longest. It's surrounded by all the meat and that bone carries the majority of the meat. And I think we're actually going to talk about this later in the slideshow too, but let's just dive into it right now. Um, Personally, I've got two different ideas when it comes to deboning. I don't know where you guys are at with it, but I've been taught two different mentalities behind it. You've got the butcher mentality, which is where we're spending the most amount of time separating the meat and muscle partitions in order to get the most amount of edible meat out of it possible, right? It's slow. It takes forever, but you have the most yield of meat. Scotty, in your situation last weekend, that was not the choice. <laughs> that is not the right method to go, right? Mm -hmm. At that point, you're spending an extra hour or two trying to get that meat off the bone. And at that point in time, your meat's just getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Yeah. So then you have and a butchering for a, uh, the caveman mentality, right? Caveman mentality normally is what I do in a pack out situation and or if it's hot, like you were just talking about. And the caveman mentality is make a cut, find the bone and get it the freak off the bone as fast as possible. Don't worry about how clean your cuts are. Don't worry about separating muscle tissues. I like to pick a spot that's as close to the bone as possible. So on that front shoulder, I try to follow that, uh, that shoulder blade, the center partition of the shoulder blade right down. You can usually split it around and keep all the meat in one piece. Once you start there on a hind, I usually start right at the knee and I cut straight up the knee all the way into the hip socket. And then I can peel everything apart and keep the hind pretty much in one giant chunk and one giant mass of meat. So that way I'm not really mixing up my meat cuts either. But uh, yeah, you definitely need to be ready for those situations and, and being aware of what you can do and what you probably shouldn't do because you don't have the time to do it. Yeah, we talk about having fun and enjoying what we're doing, but at the same time, we've got to get that meat back to the truck or to a butcher. Yeah, having the time and then not only time, but if you're doing those butcher cuts right off the rip, having the space and the, you know, the area to work is really important. A kitchen is just like second to none, right? I mean, the tops of coolers or like a tarp, in the middle of the Wyoming plains is just like, it's just not going to be the same, you know, like it's just, you just got to be realistic about it. Like I've had plenty of those butchering situations where I haven't really been super proud of the yield that I've gotten from it, but the situation didn't allow for the yield to be better than it was, right? You did the best that you could in that situation. Whereas in a controlled environment of the kitchen, you can really take your time and if you're inexperienced, you can pull up a damn YouTube video in the air condition of your home and really take your time on how to break down each muscle section and, you know, and so on and so forth. And kind of the nuances between front and hind quarters and different bits like that. Well, and I'll say, and it's, it kind of falls on those lines. It's a bit of a tangent, but I used to be more in that, that first method you described, Caleb, which is like, you know, going real slow, but trying to be meticulous because I thought that like you could only basically have like, you know, a couple of different ways to do venison steaks, 
you know, you're going to have your ground pile. But one thing I've realized as I've gotten older and more experienced with both <clears throat> processing as well as cooking and preparing is that there's a really a ton of options out there. And if you go with that more caveman style of just deboning that meat, whether because it's hot outside or whatever circumstances are, are causing you to use that method, if you can still some, you know, find some way to salvage as much meat of that as possible. Yeah. You may not have that, you know, nice, beautiful, um, eye of round steak or whatever, but there's always something else you can do with that meat, whether it be grind it, you know, put it in a roast, uh, stew, whatever it is. And the more comfortable I've gotten over the years with preparing, um, game, the more I've realized that it's like in a, in a circumstance like that, it, I, I can, you know, take a little more time on the back end to make sure that I get as much meat off the bone as quickly as possible in, in this circumstance on the front end. Carter, to comment on that real quick, talking about your YouTube style, you know, if you guys had ever get your butts out here to Colorado and hunt at like 12,500 feet with me, we have full cell phone service up there. We don't have it in town, but we've got full cell phone service on the mountain and we can watch YouTube if we want. I feel like if I'm hunting with you, I won't need to watch you too. I just need to watch you. <laughs> Through the binos as I climb a mountain and find an elk nine miles away that nobody else wants to chase. Yeah, I want to hunt with you, and then I also am terrified to hunt with you. So <laughs> <laughs> it'll happen. It'll happen one day, <laughs> and you'll never forget it That's when right. it does happen. For That's sure. Right. That's right. You guys will know that though, because we're going to miss a podcast or two because we're just going to say screw it and we're going to eat the elk out there until we're done. That's right. That's right. We'll we'll do a, a video podcast live stream it. But as far as like starting the butchering process, if you're in the field, Caleb, where do you, where do you like to start on the animal? I'm, I'm sure everybody has a different opinion here. Yeah. I think that's kind of the fun part on this is everybody's got a different idea of where they should go and how they should do it. I'm sure all three of us, all four of us all have our own version of it um, for me. And we're going to talk good situations, right? Perfect scenario where I've got ability to maneuver that animal and I've got a little bit of room to work. Uh, I like to start out on basically one side, Cause as soon as you get one side and you pull all that meat off the one side, it's literally 180, 200 pounds lighter than it was before. And it's a lot easier to maneuver, especially when you're a small guy or you're out there solo hunting or any of the, the women out there that are going to be solo hunting too. I know a lot of girls that are doing it here in Colorado and stuff like this is pivotal when they're five or six miles back in the back country. It just, it helps. So for me, um, you know, perfect scenario, I go ahead and I pull off one side of that Cape and I'll actually try to keep that Cape as in good of, good a shape as I can, if I'm not getting it taxidermied or anything like that, then I like to set that cape off to the side because I'll actually use it as another meat tarp. Uh, at that point you have good, clean hide and I can set scrap meat. Um, if I don't want to carry a kill tarp out in the backcountry with me from there, I'll go ahead and pull the front shoulder off just because it's usually the easiest. I mean, it's really just sinew that's holding it on and open air pocket really, if you will, and just muscle. So that front shoulder is usually the easiest. You can get it out of the way really quickly. Then I'll move on to my back straps. And instead of just making a typical backstrap cut where you kind of end right near the hind, I carry that backstrap cut all the way to the tailbone. And then I use that cut line later on in my hind cut because I already made it. So I'm just there and I'm following the cut all the way down. I'll pull all those backstraps out. I'll pop the neck meat out on that side if I can. And then if there's a good section of rib roll in there, you know, if I haven't just uh, blown out the ribs or anything like that, I'll go ahead and make a rib roll. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways to do a rib roll. Um, I haven't really found a method that I absolutely love that's just super easy. Uh, but what I like to do when I'm thinking about doing a rib roll is think of a McRib sandwich. 
They're disgusting. Yes, I don't think I've had one in a decade, but that is exactly what it looks like when you're done with it. These weird little lines, weird little chunks with scrap meat holding it together. But at the end of the day, it keeps all that rib meat together and it's super easy when you really think about that in your head and visualize it. You can make that rib cut pretty easy. Once I get all those guys out of the way, then I'll jump onto the hind quarter. Um, the hind quarter, I kind of like to leave last, whether it's on the front or whether it's on that first side or the second side, I like doing the hind last. Just because it's usually the hardest to maneuver because of that hip joint. That hip joint's in place. You can't just pop it out like the front shoulder. It sticks there and it makes it to be a pain in the butt. So when you pull all that other meat off, you've got more room to maneuver, less weight on the carcass, and a little bit more room to play with on that hind. From there, I start on that hind and that same cut that I already made for my back straps. I'll pull that cut all the way down into that hip socket and try to clear out as much of those tendons around that hip socket as possible. If you're by yourself, I like to tie that hind up if I have the ability to. If not, just rest that bad boy right there on your trap. Get in there nice and deep like, uh, spread them legs open and take a good old eye full of elk nut, if you will. Um, I immediately jump in there and I try to remove as much hair on the inside of that hind as possible too, just because again, more hair, more butcher costs, keep your meat clean. I even go so far as for me, um, I'll actually skin out the scrotum on an animal just because I don't want that, that scrotum hair on my meat. So make sure you're always paying attention to that uh, proof of sex on your animals, especially here in Colorado. From there, I'll go ahead and make that cut all the way around my hip, down into that hip joint and that hip socket. So I'll just basically carry everything around and I get right down into the pelvic bone section. And instead of, here you go in a traditional gutting method, most people dive in and break a pelvic bone. I don't even come anywhere near the pelvic bone. I just use that as a cut line. Then you can basically carve that out or all the way back to the rear side. And at that point, really the only thing that's holding on the, the hind is the hip joint, if you haven't already popped that, and a couple tendons. So in maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, you've removed an entire hind on an elk. If you're really paying attention, you're really going smooth. Now from here, for me, I flop and I go to the exact opposite side and just repeat the process. I think that the thing that a lot of people forget is when they get in a hurry, uh, the inner loins are tendies, right? That's the best part of the meat, right? We're gonna eat that that night. We're gonna throw that on the grill. So after I've got everything removed, I've got the hinds off, the fronts off, all the back straps, all the neck meat, all the rib rolls. I make two small incisions on the back side of the ribs. Uh, in the slideshow, you can kind of take a look at that. Uh, it's basically the very, very end, right between the pelvic bone and the rib cage. Make a small incision on each side. Make sure you're paying attention. Reach your hand in there. You can always feel those tendies. If you've uh, been around the bush, you kind of have an idea where they're at. Reach in there, feel in there. Sometimes you're lucky enough and you can just pull them out. I always use a knife just because I've got to the point where I can kind of feel around and keep that knife between my two forefingers and not cut my hand off. Now, it took a couple years of learning that and a couple stitches in the backcountry, but I figured it out. Pull those inner lines out and then uh, I'll move over to the heart. On the heart, it's really easy. All you do is pop one of those ribs out right around the heart area. You can use a bone saw or you can use a stick just to break the rib in half. Uh, basically shove stick up under there, give it a little tug and you'll break it in half and then you'll have that heart access right there. If you don't blow the heart out with your gunshot. <laughs> I purposefully don't aim for the heart on an elk anymore because it's one of my favorite cuts of meat. And if I blow the heart out, I actually get really sad. Heart sandwiches at camp the next morning or heart breakfast sausage, anything like that. Heart's phenomenal meat. It definitely is. Heart's my, my favorite for sure. Breakfast, you know, the next morning or come in with some heart is the best, the best possible meat ever. If you've never had it, you know, definitely save your hearts and try it out because it's good, whether it's a deer or an elk. Um, 
or any other animal for the most part. Um, it's good meat right there, but that's an amazing process you have there, Caleb. And to be able to, to do that is, is certainly a, a big undertaking. Um, I hope, you know, hopefully you have help. Hopefully you have a hunting buddy that you're with that's helping you out. And I mean, gosh, cause you know, two, two, two guys, three guys, gals, whatever it is, you know, the more the merrier cause a, a pack out party is, uh, isn't much of a party if you're by yourself because, uh, <laughs> that's going to be, that's going to be a tough one. Probably a little closer to misery, maybe life altering, maybe life questioning a little bit. <laughs> uh, the only thing I will say that I haven't come up with a good method personally, because I mean, this kind of goes against Gutless at the end of the day is I really like call fat, you know, Steve Rinella really got me hooked on call fat and that's just the, the fat lining or sinew or the webbing around the gut sack. I really like to get that if, out if I can, but at that point I'm diving into the guts and I'm gutting the animal. Um, but if you break the gut sack, you ruin the call fat. I have yet to be able to salvage call fat after breaking a gut sack in any way, shape or form. It soaks up poop, pee, gut, intestine fluid. And it's just, it's no good at that point in time. So make sure if you guys are trying to get into there, that call fat, you're just paying attention. And I mean, essentially at that point, you're getting the animal anyways to get most of that out. So Perry, when you were in Idaho and Evan killed his elk, uh, what was the process that y'all kind of went through? Like, did you have a game plan prepared or was it more like ready, fire, aim? Let's just fucking figure it out. Well, we had the benefit of being with Trent who like Caleb has a ton of experience. And so um, we asked Trent that question beforehand because, you know, we didn't know we, we hunted a variety of, you know, different terrains and different conditions, et cetera. We're like, you know, depending on where he shoots it and how it's laying and what the weather's doing, like, you know, what are the different options that we're going to have? And, and Trent talked us through a lot of it. And to be honest, Caleb, the way you're describing it is very similar to the way Trent described his, you know, like you said, ideal conditions, obviously, you know, shit can get, you know, complicated in the field. Um, you almost never have that perfect setup, but, um, that was, it was a very similar process that, that he did. I think he may have started with a back strap rather than the shoulder. Um, but you know, semantics more or less, um, it, it was a similar process and, in fact, the elk that Evan did kill ended up being damn near perfect situation. It was relatively flat. Um, it was right before dark, but we you know we still had light. We had we all had headlamps, and <clears throat> it was obviously Evan and I's first elk. Trent knew what he was doing. He basically took point, but you know Evan and I we've butchered a ton of animals. Um, we both, you know, dabbled with the gutless method a bit. I wouldn't say that either one of us are proficient, but Trent basically directed us and, you know, helped us out through the process. And between the three of us, I think we had the whole thing done and back to the truck in less than an hour. So, I mean, it wasn't too bad. Yeah. I think you hit a really good point there too. Everybody gets so caught up on, Oh, it's an elk or it's a moose or whatever it may be that they're getting ready to get that they've never got it before. An animal's an animal. I mean, it's the same basic composition, same basic anatomy. The only thing that you're dealing with is a 1500 pound moose or a 800 pound elk or a 200 pound deer. So don't hesitate to use the same methods that you use on normal, on a deer for an elk. It's the same process really. Ultimately it's just harder and a little bit bigger. 
Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, it, the cuts are all the same and that's what we're familiar with, right? Like I know where to make a cut to undress that front shoulder to get that shoulder separated from the body. I know how to take a back strap out. I know all the cuts to, you know, do that, do the hind quarter, et cetera. It's just the logistics of, like you say, that size and the weight. So when you said, you know, put that, that hind quarter up on your shoulder, um, we didn't have to do that because we had three of us. So when it came time to hold, you know, the real heavy sections of the hinds or even the, the front shoulders, you know, one guy could just hold or even two guys hold if, if necessary. And then you just have one guy cut it um, where you need to, which, you know, to your point, Scotty, if, if you have help, it does make it much more like a party and a lot less misery. Um, but, you know, those logistics, if you were by yourself or in, in different circumstances, you know, figuring out things like how to how to get that shoulder to the right or that, you know, hind to the right position um, as you debone it. But I mean, that's, you know, that's stuff you can you can figure out on the fly. And, and especially if you are familiar with the with the cuts and the, the general process. And honestly, that aspect of it, like what you're describing, that scene when you're around Evans Elk is probably without exaggeration, my favorite part of, or at least, I don't know, top three favorite parts of hunting as a whole, right? If you put all four of us, right, and I've only hunted with you, Perry, but if all four of us were going hunting tomorrow and we got an animal down and all of a sudden we all click into gear and we're all breaking down, whoever it is, like it doesn't matter who shoots it. That is my favorite part. It's almost like a sacred ritual, right? The, the bond of people breaking down an animal together. I mean, the camaraderie is unbeatable and the social aspect of hunting is, you know, one of my favorite things. A lot of guys like to hunt solo and, and do it all themselves. I'm, I'm the opposite. I like to share, uh, in the success of others. I like to share my success with other people. I like to do it all together. I also really like learning how to do things a new way. Um, and we're describing like rib roll. That's a term I've never heard in my entire life, Caleb. Like <laughs> I'm pumped to learn how to do that one day from you. You know what I mean? Like it's like, it's sacred and it's, it's nothing new and it's something uh, an uncountable number of individuals have experienced uh, on this earth. And, you know, you can go down to a deer camp or whatever camp it is and everybody's going to jump in and help out. Uh, hopefully if your camp's worth a shit and, uh, everybody's going to revel in the success of, you know, whoever got to shoot that animal. And it's, it's the greatest thing in the world, isn't it? It really is. It's, it's one of the, the kind of intimate moment, you know, of when, of what we're all there doing and what, why we love what we're doing, um, with that. And to be able to do it with other people is, is pretty awesome, especially when all the dopamine's flowing, you know, and everybody's jacked up and, you know, whether you're in the field or, you know, when, or coming into camp, you know, and you brought, you're bringing your kill into camp. Uh, I, I'm, I hunt with some guys and whenever somebody brings their kill into camp in the Jeep, they're doing donuts in the, in the (laughs) front area and everybody's, everybody knows that somebody's showing up with a kill. So, um, it's, it's really what it's all about. And to share those moments with people is, is, is awesome. And to, you know, put in the work, you know, it's not every day you get to pack an animal out. You might get a chance, you know, uh, if you're lucky, you get a chance once a year to do it. You know, if you're lucky, if you're extremely lucky, maybe you get a couple chances. But um, to be able to put that effort in uh, and, and bring an animal from deep in the back country down to to camp is is a special thing. I mean, and again, we hit on it last episode, but 
It's what we work so hard for. It's it's where our focus is all year round. It's why we put in for these draws and invest our money in equipment and conservation and all that stuff. It's really what it all comes down to. And um, to share those moments, you know, with like-minded people that all have that same passion is, is, is a special thing. You know, it's crazy when you start talking about this because I used to be a, a solo hunter there probably through my late teens through mid to late twenties. That was primarily all I did was solo hunting. And I think uh, I look back at it and, you know, it was really satisfying being a solo hunter and accomplishing these things on my own and, and getting through this process by myself, you know, just like packing an elk out in a sling after rotator cuff surgery. That was awesome. Right. But the more and more that I spend time hunting with my good friends and just people in general, like that bull behind me right there, I shot that bull, uh, that Saturday night by myself. And the first thing I did is I got on my sat phone and I text the guys. I was like, Hey, Katy Perry ate carbon. And it's so bad though, because you're, you're immediately in that situation. Like, you know, 10 years ago, I'd have been, this is awesome. Here I am by myself, but now, you know, I have the opportunity to share this with friends, but it's almost sad at the same time because they weren't there, right? Nobody was there to, to be in that moment, you know, watching that bull at 74 yards, quartering away arrow punching right through the lung like there's there's nobody there to experience it with you so it's so much fun when you get guys there you have a good group of friends to share it with it's a little bit more rewarding anymore to be honest with you i totally agree with you caleb i i've done a lot of solo hunting i did some solo hunting this past weekend and and i enjoyed it you know there's things that you are hyper focused on when you're by yourself and you're hunting um and they're super beneficial in life to be able to focus on being patient and sitting by yourself and being, you know, in, in your head and, and there's a hyper focus there, but, um, you know, I would have loved to shoot that pig with somebody else there to watch, you know, or like what is similar to what you're doing, you know, uh, nowadays people are doing a lot of filming, you know, and if you have your buddy, they can, you know, he can pull out his phone and watch, take a video of you drawing back on a huge bull that, you know, you'll be able to look back on and be like, dude, you remember that moment? And, uh, you know, we shot a big bull in Colorado this year and I was with my brother and my sister and, um, I'll never, ever forget that hunt. You know, we bedded them down. They, they laid down and we sat there for three hours and watched them bedded down, waiting for them to stand up. They're all blocked in by trees. And, um, we sat there and watched them and it was, it was intense and, um, a little stressful here and there, but, um, you know, when they stood up, we knew what we had to do. And, uh, but that was a moment that all of us will never, ever forget. It was one of the greatest hunting experiences of my life to be able to sit there on an, on an elk and watch them bed down a couple of them actually, and, um, and make moves. But, uh, hunting with other people is really what it's all about. And I think that's one of the great things about, you know, the, the hunt, lift, eat crew and, and, um, you know, this community that, that we are, you know, we're all, we're all in it. We all have the same passions and we are, you know, scattered throughout the country and, uh, you know, little by little, we're, we're all getting to know each other and, and meet up with people that live near us and hunt together because, uh, and that's, that's one of the amazing things about, you know, our crew for sure. Yeah. hundred percent, man. And, you know, I would have never, met Perry or hunted with Perry, um, in my life without <laughs> messaging hunt lift eat on Instagram. That's kind of crazy. Like what a bizarre sentence. Right. And now we've hunted together several times and, you know, plenty of future hunts planned as well. 
Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's weird in a, in a good way. Right. And it brings, brings people together who share the same passions all, all over the place. Right. Getting off a bit of a tangent here on the, on the feel good part of hunting, but you know, it's the best, right. It just brings a smile ear to ear, you know? Well, and it's, it's part of after the kill. I mean, that's that, you know, that's that celebration, that, that moment that, that we're talking about celebrating with your friends or your family or, you know, whatever that's, that's right after the kill. I mean, there's nothing that's more um, prudent to, the, to to this conversation if you kind of step away from some of the technical aspects than that. I mean, that's kind of the reason we do it. So, I mean, I think I mean, it's actually yeah, dude. The warm coors on the on the front porch of the cabin when Perry I, and I we, we we packed these turkeys off off the Appalachian hill that we were hunting on and we hiked down and it was picturesque and it was beautiful. And then we had a warm <laughs> Coors beer on the front porch and at 10 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> 10 o'clock in the morning. Life is good, man. It's the appropriate time. What's that exactly. terrible whiskey that y'all drink Scotty and Caleb? That's part of your ritual. Oh my goodness. Well, we were drinking uh, old crow. Spice. I can't say that was part of my tradition, but, but okay. Caleb's got the good stuff. <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it good. It's like drinking liquid sugar death. <laughs> Good old honeyproof hot damn, you know, that's, uh, damn, that's right. Hot there's damn. a flask of it sitting right now in my hunting bag, you know, it kind of sits there <laughs> like we talked about, but you know, right where you're at, Scotty, that's probably one of the best parts about our community that we've got going on here with HLE. All of us are so willing to talk and so willing to, to reach out and help each other and ask for advice. Guys, don't, don't hesitate. These after kill conversations, you know, I've answered a few questions on there about tripods, glass, cameras, anything like that. We're all here. We're a wealth of knowledge. And that's what we're here to do is help each other. And at the end of the day, these uh, these podcasts, it's the same concept. Helping everybody out, getting good information, getting good knowledge out there, and being part of the team. It's awesome. Gotta love it. No, it, I was just going to say it is pretty awesome, you know, and I've, re- you know, I've asked Caleb questions and over the years, you know, I've, I've realized that, man, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, like a young gun anymore, but I'm also not like totally you know, old either, but now, so maybe I might know something, you know, and maybe some of this life experience has uh, culminated into something and, and it really has. And, and, and I've loved that, that ability to Caleb, to be able to talk to different people and answer questions and, you know, people message me um, regarding European mounts or whatever. And just, it's, you know, let me know that, you know, that they're pursuing their, their interests too, and wanting to expand their skills and their trade. And, um, and, uh, and I certainly don't know everything. I'm always trying to learn something new and, uh, and I don't claim to know everything either, but, uh, it's, it's fun to have a community like this so that we can all, you know, bounce ideas off each other. For sure. And then absolutely, I mean, a hundred percent, man. And tying back into, you know, the title of this podcast or series or after the kill, I think one of the most rewarding parts that I've found about the entire process is now that I've learned a thing or two, my favorite part is that mentor role and taking other people uh, on new experiences. I've really leaned into that and I've, I, I love it. Like it makes me so happy, like have helping doing what I can for, to help someone else get an animal on the ground or, you know, or not and have the experience regardless uh, is so fulfilling, far more fulfilling than me ever pulling the trigger. And I guess maybe that's unsurprising because my profession as a teacher, but I really love that, that mentor role and, and kind of the fulfillment that comes with that and passing on knowledge that 
was so generously handed to me and, you know, painstakingly taught to me over, you know, many, many hours that my mentors uh, spent teaching me these skills. You know, and that's a great way to talk about it after the kill too, because I mean, these are all situations, knowledge, uh, hunts, experiences, everything that we've learned after we're done with this kill, it's time for us to pass this on. Whether it's to a newbie, whether it's to everybody in the group, whether it's to just random people that you meet in life. Uh, I sold a stone glacier pack like two weeks ago and I had an hour and a half long conversation with a guy in the parking lot. He was from Tennessee and wanted to hunt out for the first time in his life this year. You know, conversations like that change people and they really make a good conservationist. And when you can have that conversation and you can help out after you've already had all these experiences and you've had the chance to harvest, do it, like dive into it, pass that knowledge on anything you can. At the end of the day, we're all trying to achieve the same thing. Spend the time and effort out in the backcountry to take home an animal that we can feed our family with. It's not trade secret. It's not, you know, special this, special that. It is being conservationist and being a good person. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, that, it, that's, you know, having those conversations are so important, Caleb. Um, even myself, I've, um, I ask a lot of questions to guys that I look up to when, I, when I'm around them. I'm always trying to pick their brain. And so um, it goes both ways. And um, so it's always nice when someone comes to you and has questions for you. But uh, don't be afraid to ask questions, especially when you're around people that you know have experience. Ask the questions. I've been asking a lot of questions of guys that hunt a lot of pigs out here. Hey, where, where should I go? How should I do it? Um, and uh, and they're a wealth of knowledge, you know, um, and they've told me, you know, oh, hunt over water from nine to noon, you know, and 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 check the, uh, you know, north facing ridges and stuff like that. So um, there's a lot of good advice out there. There's a lot of experience out there and, uh, it's important that we all take advantage of it when we can. I know one thing that we can take advantage of with your, uh, expertise, Scotty is, um, all the work you, you know, you're called the skull keeper for a reason, right? All your, your, ex, your expertise on, on doing your amounts. Um, I've dabbled, got a couple, uh, that, you know, a couple animals I've killed some deadheads I've found, I could pick your brain for hours probably on what I've screwed up and doing some of the euro mounts that I've done and how I could do it better. And as I'm sure, you know, we all could, could learn a few things of that and hell, I mean, at this point might be a topic for a whole nother new after the kill part three episode. What do you, what do you think about that? Oh man, I I'm right there with you. I could talk about it for hours too, but I'd be totally down with that. Um, you know, doing those European mounts has been so fun for me. Um, it's, it's still a hobby. You know, I, I like to help my buddies out when I can, if they, if they need help. Uh, I just like doing the work. Um, and, uh, it's been something that's, uh, evolved over the years. It started out as something really basic and rudimentary, um, and, and borderline disgusting to now it's really clean and, uh, and, and, it even smells good when it's done. So, uh, I love doing them and, uh, and I'd love to talk about them because I think it's something everybody can do. I think it's important that, that men and women all kind of push themselves to try something different, try something that they've never done before. Um, and this is, if, if you're into hunting, um, it, it's a perfect opportunity for you to, um, save and, and to really, uh, relish in, what you've done and have a keepsake to, to keep around forever. That'll last generations really. Um, so 
I love, I love those European mounts. So if anybody's got any questions about those, I'm happy to, um, answer some of those. And I've, I've gotten a lot of guidance, um, watch a lot of YouTube videos. And, um, so, uh, it's been a process that's evolved over the years. So I'd love to do that though. And just for the record, Scotty, I'm a sure, I'm very sure that your method for keeping the smelling good is not just a fresh car scent, uh, little pine tree in the back of the skull. <laughs> I haven't got to not, that point yet on my own where they all smell good. So <laughs> definitely interested to see the smell good part because uh, there's yeah. a few of them that are a little raunchy. Yeah, no, and they can get raunchy at times, but uh, there is a trick to to keeping them clean towards the end. So, uh, and I'll 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 drop that on you guys. It'll be, and it help it makes them look nicer too. I think I think you guys will really enjoy it. I promise you, mine do not smell good. So I must have done something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Yeah, we'll definitely have to jump into that on the next one, guys. But we're running up on an hour here, um, so maybe we'll go around the horn with some some uh, closing thoughts here and then uh, jump off until we get to get into part three. Caleb, what are you thinking, man? You know, it's, it's funny that we always have this like in conversation, how we have thoughts and things that we think about and things that we like to put out with everybody. And I guess, I guess for me at the end of it is it's all about this part, right? The communication. It's easy. It's flowing. It's good. So do whatever you can to talk to more people, talk to three or four people within your radius. You'll have that knowledge and you'll gain that information. You'll gain that knowledge and gain whatever it is you're really trying to seek in life. So talk to people, guys. Don't hesitate. Always talk to people. And if you're not talking to people, talk to more people. If those people don't want to talk, talk to more people. Yeah, that's really good, Caleb. I'm going to I'm going to just kind of double on that. And outside of talking to people, um, you know, press the limits a little bit and try. I, I just said it, but. Do, don't be afraid to do something you've never done before, you know, and uh, it, it, the tasks sound monumental at times, but you are totally capable of doing it. You surround yourself by the right people. You uh, ask the right questions and uh, and understand that you're going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Everybody's punched a gut sack before. It's not the end of the I mean, it's going to suck, but it happens, you know, shit happens. I mean, what can you do? You're going to make mistakes. That's how you learn and that's how you grow. And before you know it, you get enough animals. You can probably do it with your eyes closed at some point. Um, so push yourself and, uh, and don't be afraid to, to get out there and try something new. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's exactly right. And that can be on the front end, preparing for a new hunt, chasing a new species, going to a new state, trying a different, you know, method of, of processing or butchering. I mean, whatever, it can be anything. And, um, I think one of the things that, that you, y'all have talked about several times and is, is important to hammer home again is, um, just putting as much effort into the back end of a hunt as you do the front end of a hunt. Um, we all focus on the front end of the hunt, that point right up into and including the shot. And it's, it's pivotal to put the intentionality into the back end of it. The second after you take your finger off the trigger, it's okay to mess up. Like you said, Scotty, it's okay to try something new, maybe not get it hundred percent right. If you're elk hunting for the first time and you're an Easterner, you've only ever killed whitetail. It's going to be a little bit foreign, um, but that's all cool. Um, put in the work, try something new, communicate, ask those questions at the end of the day, we're doing this to learn, to have fun, to put food on the table. 
and we can accomplish those goals. Well said. Yeah, totally agree with you guys. In all facets of life, it's always important uh, to learn a new discipline. It's a noble and, and just thing to do. Learn a new, new discipline and learn how to do things a new way. Um, and with hunting, you're never going to have it pinned down and you're never going to be an expert. You're never going to have it all figured out. There's always room for improvement. And that's why doing this with uh, people you care about is always the greatest thing in the world. Um, but yeah, I think that's where uh, we'll stop this one this week, guys. Uh, Caleb, where can uh, folks find you on Instagram? Uh, so there's two different places you can find me. Incline Productions, it's with a K. If you spell it with a C, you're wrong. It's with a K. Uh, and then uh, Caleb Bell 4, super easy. Uh, there's a picture of me in that phenomenal bull back there behind me and uh, with a smile about as big as the Tennessee or Mississippi River, whatever the heck's over there on your, your guys' side of the world. <laughs> I love it, man. We'll link both of those and then uh, remind me next episode and we'll dive into Incline Productions, man. I want to hear more about it and hear you talk about it, man. Yeah, definitely. Of course. Scotty, where can folks find you, man? Yeah, people can find me on Instagram, the Skull Keeper, the underscore Skull underscore Keeper. Thank you, Carter. Uh you can find me on there. Uh, you know, a bunch of European mounts and hunting pictures and um start I'm, i make i like to make reels too i mean that's kind of the cool thing to do nowadays i guess but um so uh i like toying around with that a little bit but that's where you can find me and uh you know if you got any questions on european mounts feel free to reach out i know there's not a lot of action going on right now but even if you shoot a turkey you can you know it's a good thing you can try to do a european mount on it's it's difficult. I'll tell you, any type of bird is going to be hard because they got really fine small bones inside their heads. But um, but again, hey, get out there and go try it for sure. Can I just mail my turkey head to you? Is it like is that frowned upon by FedEx? <laughs> uh, I, I I can't speak for FedEx, uh, but not frowned upon over here. Go ahead, send them over. I'd be try happy to do it for you for sure. Yeah. Make sure it's a deep. Fri- make sure you freeze it pretty hard before you send it. Oh no, this is coming fresh off the field. Lop the head straight off. Just wrap a bunch <laughs> of duct tape around it. Yeah. yeah Perry That's looked at me kind of Perry looked at me kind of sideways last weekend when I lopped the heads off of both of mine. He's like, What the hell are you gonna do with those? I was like, Scotty just told me to keep them. I'm, they're going in the freezer. I'm keeping them. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Send it, man. <laughs> yeah, you should save all your heads that you can. Pro tip right here. Save them. Just wrap them up in plastic, throw them in the freezer, okay? And and we can't hit this on the other podcast, but you got to do them in bulk if you can. So save your heads. It's a lot of it's a process. So do do a bunch at a time if you can. How about a little teaser, Scotty? Uh, Things not to do with your skulls before you euro. Do not leave them out in the sun for multiple days. Yep, and leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. In the Evan, sun. you better be listening right now. Nailed a fucking coyote to a tree. <laughs> Dude, it's for been weeks. This fucking November. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I bet you the skull's still good, though. It's not going anywhere, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Perry, where can folks find you on Instagram? Oh, man. Uh, they can find me at, at uh, perry.r.eisner. Um, <laughs> not, not a big real guy, so you're not going to find too many of the, of the reels over there. Um, but yeah, you limited content that I have. That's where you can go find it. Maybe it's time to try something new, Perry. Ah, <laughs> damn it, Carter. <laughs> damn it. You kids and your reels. You kids and your reels. <laughs> well, Hey, I appreciate it guys. Thanks for jumping on tonight. Uh, listeners. Thanks again. We appreciate the hell out of all y'all. 
Uh, please give us a follow at Hunt, Lift, Eat Official on Instagram, and we will talk to y'all next week. Thanks.